Hi everyone, it's April 15th, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is David Weiss, professor and chair of the Department of Physiology at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center here in San Antonio. David studies the structure and function of GABA receptor activation, selectivity, modulation, and regulation. Thanks for being here, David. Welcome. Around the room, we've got Carlos Palladini. How you doing? Charlie Wilson. Hi. Todd Troyer. Howdy. And me, I'm your host, I'm Salma Karashi. Uh, David, a lot of what we know about GABA receptors comes from inferred properties based on structural homology with other ion channel receptors. It, it seems that this is a great starting point, yet we continue to lump so many features of these very different receptors together. What are the differences, or are these functionally diverse channels really that similar? Yeah, they really are um, similar because it's, it's, first of all, if you look at just the protein sequences of these things, they're, they're fairly homologous. Um, and they, they seem to thread themselves through the membrane very similarly. And it even goes, they all have the pore, presumed pore, in the same place. And even um, if you look at where the ligands bind, so for example, if you're talking about the acetylcholine receptor where acetylcholine binds, if you're talking about the glycine receptor where glycine binds, you see that the, even those residues that seem to form the crucial uh, points of contact with the ligands, they all line up really well. So, so of course, there are differences, right, because one binds acetylcholine and one binds GABA. Some let sodium and potassium through. Some let chloride through. So you know there are differences. But, uh, but the similarities are remarkable. And, and actually, that makes one thing really nice because you can, and lots of people do this, take advantage of that and swap domains between different types of receptors. So that's... But you mean actually it. swap them using uh, genetic methods or something? So yeah, swap them, a... absolutely. Swap them using genetic mechanisms or by looking and saying, okay, so I think that there's, so, so take, for example, the acetylcholine receptor lets sodium potassium through, the GABA receptor lets chloride through. So you start looking, or, you know, obviously somewhere there's got to be a difference, right? And so you start looking in the pore region and you try to look at where there's some interesting differences, maybe looking for charge residues and so forth. And then you can, you know, make corresponding swaps. And we've actually, we've been able to do that. We've been able, with a single mutation, to turn this chloride pore into a pore that's more permeable to sodium and potassium. So, you, you know, they're, they're similar enough to where you can take advantage of those types of things. Carlos? Um, so it, it, it seems like you're doing these homology studies because you just don't have the, the structural image yet. Mm -hmm. So what's the holdup? Yeah, that's <laughs> my question. Yeah, so um, it's amazing how difficult it's been. So it, <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at the membrane proteins that have been crystallized, most of them have been bacterial and um, a bacterial origin, and they're starting to get more and more of them. But it's just very difficult to crystallize uh, membrane proteins. People have even um, so 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 it, you have this acetylcholine binding protein, right, which which has been crystallized, and that represents the amino terminus of the acetylcholine receptor, more or less. So you might think that you could just truncate the GABA receptor and just look at the amino terminal domain and crystallize that. And then at least you'd have that part. Nope. <laughs> I had to tell you how many labs and being on study section, it seemed like every person studying GABA receptors, specific game four, was, you know, 
to crystallize the amino terminal domain, and they always showed you those same gels with <laughs> muck, and nobody has been able to do it. So um, I think there are other um, receptors they found that are homologous that we're using to, again, enrich this homology model, but it is just really difficult. We do... Um, there's uh, Nigel Unwin has been able to get the entire receptor. Um, he does the electro, the, uh, electro uh, eel. And so there you can, uh, because that's what's used in the gland, you can actually get pure, pure basically uh, acetylcholine receptors. And he puts them in these tubes and he images them with a high voltage electron microscopy. There he's able to get structure, but it's not crystallizing it and it's not the two, three angstrom resolution that you need to, it's, it's more, well, he's got it down to four or five and you can sort of see things, but it's very, very, very difficult to, and I don't know if even the people that do this regularly have the trick of how you take something that's insoluble and hard to crystallize into something that's actually so it almost, but from what you said, it seems it's almost, it's not even really necessary to have the crystal structure. What do you think if once we do get past that barrier, what do you think the next, what will that tell us? What, what are the questions that, that that'll answer? That's a good, that's a good question. I, I think it, first of all, I would say that it really is necessary. Um, and, 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 and people are trying and somebody will get it. There's no doubt about it because in the end, um, we are right on the, the homology between, let's say, the GABA receptor and the acetylcholine binding protein in the amino terminal domain is just on the edge of believability when you do the homology modeling. In other words, there's a faction of hardcore protein people out there that says you're below the 36% or whatever it is that you need to really be able to do that. So you, in the end, you really do need that structure. So the, 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 the next question is, what do you do once you have it? Have you solved all the answers? And, and no, I mean, there, if, if you take a look at the channels that have been cloned, the ones that are like shaker and, and, and voltage-gated channels, they still, there's a raging debate on how these things are activated. They just don't know. And so you need the, it's one thing, remember, a crystal structure is a, is a s static snapshot of a protein in probably a series of states of which you sometimes don't even know what they are. And to go from that to what things are moving and how it opens and how this binds and how allosteric modulation occurs, it's really hard. So it seems like you got really, somebody got really lucky with the acetylcholine binding receptor that nature provided in some strange animal, right? So why did that, why could you crystallize that? Is there something special about that that enabled that to be crystallized or no one really knows what the difference is? Uh, no, but I would say nobody really knows what the difference is. There are some differences, and people are, I think, trying to take advantage of it, but, I th but it's, uh, don't know, don't know. What Mother Nature needed us a, a soluble protein to put out there in the synapse to bind up acetylcholine and designed it as such, but to, to go to getting you know, one of these other receptors that normally sit in the membrane, I've been able to do it. So what it would take... What it would take to satisfy us that we really understood the receptor is a kind of moving picture of how the structure changes during gating and how the structure changes during binding and the difference between agonist and antagonist and all of that kind of stuff. It's a kind of a computer model of the receptor that would be accurate and would be valid. And you could say that isn't just a hypothesis, that's the actual that's yeah. thing. So once we have the 
crystal structure, what else do we need to go to that step to be able to have that little moving picture of the of the receptor working, or any other protein like that that has a kind of mechanical aspect to its function? Yeah, when are we going to be satisfied? <laughs> uh, uh, what do we need? So I, I, I see that we really have to have yeah. the crystal structure so that we know exactly how all of them are laid next to each other. And of course, what you just said, I think, I interpreted what you just said mm -hmm. as meaning that when we have the crystal structure, it's a kind of average across mm -hmm. a bunch of different uh, positional states, conformational states. Right. So it's it's not just a snapshot, it's really a kind of a blurred image of a movie. Right. And then, uh, so what's necessary is to de-blur that and to turn it back into a movie and see in it making it changes. Mm -hmm. So how will we do that step after we have the crystal step? You know, I don't know how we're going to get there. I think it's almost like in the early days when we were blindly making mutations to try to figure things out. It was still, we realized we were probably a long ways away from being able to go from, you know, these, these mute, mutation-driven functional changes to a structure. I mean, it's really a difficult thing to do. And, and there are techniques out there, some of which, you know, involve fluorescence changes and so forth, um, that allow you to infer movements of parts of the protein. But it's now we're in the early stages of that. Um, there are other, you know, there are other ways people have been able to try to crystallize things in the open versus closed states. And maybe that would be great, right? Because if you could see something that you knew was open, something that you knew was closed, something that you knew was ligand bound or something that you knew was unligand bound, then you, you could maybe start to make guesses about what's going on in between as the, as the protein people get a little bit better at doing the molecular dynamics and we have a better structure. That may be where part of the information comes from. Again, Nigel Unwin did his imaging not at the, you know, crystal resolution, but he developed this technique where he could image it in, in the closed state, presumably. There's no reason to think they wouldn't be in the closed state. This was not crystallized in the sense these were still in membranes. But he could then um, very rapidly expose these receptors. He actually dropped them through a mist of acetylcholine, and they would hit and freeze instantaneously, all within a millisecond or two. So what he was trying to do was catch them in the open-bound state before they desensitized. And then he compared the structures, and he saw differences around the pore, inferring that these are gating motions and stuff like that. So all of these things together, I think, will so take... So if you had those, those would be like keyframes in an animation. Exactly. And, and then you, you need to know the, the physics that's required to fill in the gaps, exactly. and that would come from the molecular dynamics. Exactly. Gaps. Exactly. That's the hope, but we're still a long ways. We don't want to figure yeah. it all out, because then we're out of job. Right? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> There's always going to be another receptor, but if they're all basically the same, and once you've done one, you have done them all in some sense. Presumably, but so There's still. more than one family of them. I mean, the ones that you're comparing to each other are sort of relatives, and then mm -hmm. there are some receptors that live in other kinds of families and other kinds of That's molecules true. to worry about. I think everybody will always, I think there'll always be an issue where you want the structure, you want it all for what you're studying, you don't want to always depend, because there are going to be some subtle differences which could be important, and think about also, you have now... Once you know all this information and you really have the structure, you really understand how these things work, now you can start to, you know, by then the drug design is coming along and now you can start to design drugs that you can target these particular proteins, channels, 
receptors or whatever to do exactly what you you know what you want. So that's that's where you would go next, I think. That is a, that's a cool topic. But, but and I, and I was anxious to ask you a couple of questions about that. But it seems to me that that uh, pharmaceutical business is mainly about the differences among receptors and not about the thing that they all share in common. Right. But in a way, though, a scientific question that's most interesting is about the things that they all share in common. So for the for the ones that share stuff in common, how big is that family? So we've all learned the names of a whole bunch of receptors. What are all the receptors that are basically similar to the nicotinic receptor and the GABA receptor? Um, so, so the the the, the nicotinic receptor. Um, there's obviously the muscle nicotinic receptor and the neuronal nicotinic receptor. And so, in muscle, you have about uh, five or six subunits, right? There's a swap that occurs during development. Um, I don't know the actual numbers of all these. I don't carry them out of my head. But then you have the neuronal nicotinic receptors, which are very different. Um, well, they're not very different in terms of structure. They're all part of the same thing, but they're different subunits, different gene products. And there's alphas and betas, and I think there's, you know, if anybody knows, jump in, but there's something like nine alphas and maybe two or three betas that we know about. And these are the ones that are, that are found in the nervous system. And then the GABA receptor, there's 19 different um, GABA-A slash GABA-C, if you want to pull those together, um, subunits. The, the interesting thing that is not very well known in, that, in, in the GABA receptor field is which combinations come together. So you could go into a cell and you could see which ones you think are being expressed in there by looking at the RNA. But the question is, you really still don't know what's being put together. So the combinations, although mathematically there's an astronomical number of possible combinations, in fact, it probably is not an astronomical number in existence that probably well-defined, put together in a certain way to have certain features. And so, so you, I can't tell you how many different types of GABA receptors there are because of that, because we don't know. But there, um, there are clearly going to be lots. And then there's the glycine receptor, of which there are, I believe, four alphas and maybe one beta. And there you have diversity, too. So um, you have different combinations that you can have, okay? And, um, and then the last one is the serotonin type 3 receptor, and there's, I think, two or three different subunits of those. So all of these, if I was to throw up a subunit, you know, a, a sort of a subunit and how it looks in the membrane, it could be any one of all of those that I've just mentioned. So there's, there's a bunch. Yeah. They're not at all similar to the glutamate. turns out that the glutamate receptor family are closer to voltage-gated channels than they are to the ligand-gated acetylcholine, GABA, glycine, serotonin. And then there are counterparts that are found in other you know, bacterial counterparts that are very similar, not as similar, but close to this family of receptors. So we've been talking a lot about function. Um, or structure. Mm -hmm. Now let's get to the function part of it. Actually, the one thing I want to mention is there's so much background noise that that's why I'm really trying to get you guys to speak a little louder. It's usually not that much of a problem, but we're going to have a problem with that noise. So um, if you guys can just really crank okay. it up. Oh, um, God. <laughs> sorry. Because <laughs> that's, yeah, that's going to be bad. Um, okay, so we've, we've been talking uh, about structure so far. And um, 
we've been talking about structure so far, and so let, let's let's get to function here. And so okay. many of us aren't familiar with one of the fundamental techniques you use in your lab. You mentioned uh, fluorescent spectros- spectroscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, could you describe it for us, just because, I, I mean, it was relatively new to me when I first heard about it, and maybe just briefly go over some of the core principles of it. Okay, it's a technique that it was sort of introduced into the ligand-gated channel field by uh, Bezania and, and Isakoff, two separate labs. And it's a technique that's based on the notion that um, if there's a part of the receptor that moves during activation, um, you, can, you can tag that part of the receptor by putting a cysteine mutation there and, and sticking an environmentally sensitive fluorophore on that cysteine. And that environmentally sensitive fluorophore, when that part of the protein moves, or another way of saying is when the environment around that fluorophore changes, its fluorescence changes. It may go up or down depending upon whether it's moving into a more hydrophilic or hydrophobic. It's the polarity of the environment, essentially. And so this is a technique that allows you to to infer structural changes. Now, on, a, on its own, you might say that's maybe not going to tell you a lot. Of course we know things are moving. How much are they moving? In what direction? You know, at what point along the activation process? But if you, if you can um, couple that with actual recording of channel opening and closing, then you can begin to correlate those presumed structural changes with with with. Uh, channel opening. So that's basically uh, the, the technique. So how, how, how promising is this relative to, we all want the structure, it sounds like potentially really cool, you could hang a bunch of Christmas tree lights on things and see things move and which things get closer or further. You're talking about some fret-like uh, interactions between uh, fluorescence. It seems like you could potentially get a pretty rich structure about the way things move. Is that, is that going to be Completely complementary, or I mean, how, how promising do you think that is? I mean, you, you introduced it in being very limited, or you think it could be limited, but well, there are other techniques. I think the, there's a technique called uh, luminescence resonance energy transfer, which is maybe I would call that we're moving in that direction. The voltage gated channel people, as always, are ahead of us because <laughs> you know they got onto these things a lot. It's a lot easier to do it in voltage gated channels for reasons I'm going to now, but. Um, that's a technique that I think has better resolution. In other words, you really can uh, quantify movements and directions of movements and magnitude of movements and so forth. I think on the, on, in the end, you know, it, these, we're not going to be able to build a complete picture of, um, of these things just from that type of data. I think there will be, you know, whether it's NMR or other types of... Uh, of, of an analysis that we're going to have to use because in the end, you know, we we did not get to from point mutations to ribbon structures. We had that homology model along the along the way that allowed us to kind of refine it. They complemented each other and stuff, but you really needed that. It's just not doable to go straight from the mutagenesis. And I would probably say the same for these types of, of imaging fluorescence techniques, you can ask pointed questions. Is this part of the receptor moving? Is that by how much, in which direction, at what point along the activation process? But to go to a full-blown movie of this thing, you know, binding, if it's you're talking about the GAB receptor, and then gate and, and opening, I don't see it yet. How big are these fluorophores? 
Which, well, um, that's a good it, they're, point. They've got some yeah. mass to them. They and do. Presumably, if you, I mean, so you, so you bring up a really interesting point that that um, that's something that you also have to worry about, and that is that some, the one that that um, we we use different ones, and and the problem with some of these fluorophores is they're really big, and the problem with that is the fluorescence changes that they're reporting are some distance away from their point of attachment on the protein. So we like to think they're getting pulled along, tugged along, you know, like you're tugging a boat or something, and it's rigid and, and it's reflecting movements. But you do have to worry about these things flopping in the breeze and reporting something that may not be relevant. So you have to be very careful and do lots of controls. There are smaller fluorophores now that are available, and we're moving to those as well. Um, so, then there's also the issue of just access also. Just Accessibility, yeah. right. The larger they are, sometimes the harder they are to get into the crevices, which is where your cysteine residue is that you're trying to attach it to. So you're right. But um, m m we, we've had pretty good success. I mean, they are small enough to where they can fit into most places that we are, the, we want to be. The problem is if you start now trying to work your way down towards the gate, now you're not up there in the extracellular domain where things are accessible. It's going to be more difficult. And people are trying to figure out ways of genetically encoding some type of reporter down there. There are other methods, by the way, that allow you to make inferences about movements of protein. So, for example, you can get these very small molecules that stick to cysteine, kind of like these fluorophores we've been talking about, um, and they change its function in some way. So let's say you put, you could put one of these cysteines somewhere down in the pore, and this, and then you can modify that cysteine with a small um, compound that will actually can get to it easily and block conduction, so you know it's there. And then you can put the channel in different states, close it or open it with voltage or ligand, okay? And ask the question, has the ability to access and modify that residue changed? That's a state-dependent accessibility, and it's telling you that that region, either one of two things, either that region is moving and it's changing its accessibility or something is moving in front of it and changing its accessibility. There's still limitations. But there are other techniques like that that do allow you to infer um, structural changes, not just these fluorescence approaches. So are there other ways of thinking about this problem, how you transduce binding to pore opening, or is it just a cascade of structural changes? That I mean, is that, are there alternate <coughs> hypotheses, um, or is it just all about... A moves B and B moves C. How, no, it's how, not. How That's a good question. There's also techniques, analytical techniques. Tony Auerbach um, in Buffalo has been a person very big in this area, and he has this fee analysis where he's able to... Um, I can't go into huge detail about this, not because I, we don't have time, but because it's really difficult, and I'm not sure I get it. <laughs> but, it but it's a really neat approach that um, is basically... you allows you to make a mutation... Um, in some particular place that you think is somewhere between the binding and the, and the opening of the pore, and you might does this in like acetylcholine receptors. And from an analysis of the data, you can infer how close that mutation is along the conformational wave that we think is occurring from binding to opening. In other words, is it closer to the binding thing, 
or is it closer to the poor opening thing? And it's a very complicated uh, kind of analysis that he adopted from the pro- from the protein field that looks at structural changes. So this is yet another way. Uh, but again, in the end, what are you left with? You, you're left with an amino acid that is somewhere along the pathway to get to structure. Big leap, but it's but it's pretty cool technique. Well, the um, the other aspect of all of this, besides the things that that we've been talking about, those sort of mechanics of the molecule, is the enormous diversity of the channel subunits and the and presumably the diversity of channels themselves. Mm-hmm. And it seems odd, in a way, that the there would be kind of one plan for a receptor for a whole family of receptors and that they would all follow the plan and then there would be this blossoming of diversity uh, for what they bind and and how they bind it so does that make sense to you I mean, does it have a make a sort of adaptive sense for the evolution of the molecule and it's a that's a good question if i under, if i if i understand you right it's something that the field is grappling with and it's not just the GABA receptor field, but you look at potassium channel diversity, for example. It's insane how many different types of potassium channels there are. And you can take a look, like let's say you're an electrophysiologist and and you're going to do what everybody did in the early days when they discovered all these things. They're going to sit and say, all right, how are they different? And they'll put together different subunits and they'll ask. It's amazing sometimes how similar they really are. So in other words, you almost can't see functional differences between these things. And so it begs the question as to why did they evolve? And I think it's not, you know, there are differences. I don't want to say that there's, you know, there are cases where clearly you want one that inactivates faster or you want one that opens or closes if you're talking about a ligand-gated channel faster or responds to some endogenous, let's suppose there's an endogenous benzodiazepine, you know, that responds differentially to that, that you want, that you can regulate differently. We just haven't figured out what the purpose of it is yet. Just because we haven't identified doesn't mean there isn't a reason. Maybe it's a regulatory molecule, phosphorylation, we haven't figured out yet. Maybe it has nothing to do with that. Maybe it's a tagging issue. Maybe there are times you want to put them on one place in the cell versus another place in the cell. Maybe you want them functionally more or less similar, but you want them to respond to a different regulatory pathway in that regard. So I think that you know we could sit and dream up lots of reasons why you want to do it, but that is probably, you know, still the, the 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 toughest question in the field. Why do you have this tremendous diversity? I can't believe it's for the fine gradations and differences between them. Does it mean something that that cells, different cells, tend to express different ones, or is is that really true? Is there a pattern uh, across the brain where we see one kind of GABA receptor one place and another another place, and there is there is um, there are lot. I mean, first of all, GABA receptors. I, I defy anybody to show me a neuron that doesn't respond to GABA. I mean, every single, they're absolutely ubiquitous, um, and 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 people spent a lot of time again in the early days once they identified all these subunits, PCRing, you know, RT PCRing to see what subunits are expressed trying to correlate that with function and stuff like that. And so there are lots of neurons that, ex- that express lots of different types of GABA receptor subunits, but then there are other places, some places, for example, in the cerebellum, where there seem to be just one or two 
different types of GABA receptors because there's only a few different subunits being expressed. We don't know why and what, you know, but clearly there's a reason, and, and, and it is, you know... It sounds like it would be a good place to look. It is a tough problem. It's a really tough problem. It depends on the question. If you're asking the question why... <laughs> or how. I mean, those are two different... Uh, well, that seems like a ripe question for comparative uh, approaches, right? You can look at the evolution of various subtypes across pretty... The, the conservation is pretty cool here, right? I mean, you can look at these things in insects and, yep. and you know, pretty broad range, and they're similar enough that you can actually comparing something similar. And so the evolution of how... The span of evolution that you can look at seems large. Um, That's right. And... I guess with, you know, the acceleration that some of the genetic techniques makes it easier to assess some of that. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, there's, you know, there's varying degrees of diversity as you go around the animal kingdoms. Drosophila has some pretty good diversity, not nearly what, what you and I have. C. elegans has great, there's lots of different types of GABA receptors there. So that might be, you know, a good place to start. I guess that's not what attracts the drug companies to the diversity of GABA receptors, though. And their interests are in making drugs that interact with some symptom and not with some other symptom, and they're hoping there's a one-to-one correspondence between side effect and receptor, between good effect and receptor. And is that working out for them? Is it is it true? Um, there, there have been... I would I would say that has, that success has not been nearly what they anticipated. There were companies out there I know of some in the early days after these things were cloned um, that that's all they were doing is they were going after they had a medic- medicinal a team of medicinal chemists and a team of electrophysiologists and the team of, phys- of electrophysiologists were sitting there expressing all these different GABA receptor subunits and oocytes and these guys were just pouring in the compounds and um, they were testing them and. It's just really hard. Again, it gets back to the initial question you asked about the homology. That to, to really, that, that they're so similar structurally. It's really hard to target, and 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 hit you know a small subset of those. There are drugs that do it. Um, benzodiazepines, some of them are the be- best examples, but um, it's it's been very very difficult. And I would say uh, that there's not nearly as much of that kind of research going on now. So as there was it, a decade ago. Even if it didn't lead to better tranquilizers, it ought to have led to better GABA antagonists for use in the laboratory. Did it do that? So there has been some of that that's come out of it, but you know, the drug companies, a lot of them anyway, are sort of folding up shop on a lot of this type of stuff. And so, and as you know, it's hard to get NIH to, to fund drug discovery types of endeavors as an academic scientist. Mm-hmm. So... But yeah, some yeah, you're right. Absolutely. So there have been lots of compounds um, that have come out of uh, of these screenings. Um, like there are now antagonists for the benzodiazepine receptor, and that could be clinically kind of an important thing to do. Maybe for a benzodiazepine overdose, you have an antagonist, or you know. So so yeah, there have been compounds, but again, not as much. There also are some medicinal chemists out there that are doing it, that are teamed up. They're in a university, and they're teamed up with, you know, uh, other other labs that are kind of doing drug discovery type stuff. Yeah. You're doing some work with some drug companies on the on non-benzodiazepine, GABA-A, allosteric agonists or something. Right, um, we, right. We're working with a company... 
um, that has on the market one of these non-benzodiazepine drugs, and it's pretty effective. And there's other ones on the market, and they're interested in making better ones and compare. And so they're we're basically doing a comparison between these um, these types of, of compounds to see. Um, since they do seem to have different phenotypes and, and sort of behavioral effects, in the end, that probably has to come down to differences in interactions with GABA receptors, right? That's, that's the known target. And so the question is, how do you figure out what that is? So we are doing um, experiments uh, where we're test, com- testing and comparing these different drugs on different types of GABA receptors at synapses, using rapid application techniques, to model synapses, since GABA comes and goes very quickly at a synapse, you got to you want to study how it's working in a synapse. You got to either study it in a synapse or mimic one. And so we're comparing these and um, and trying to see what the difference. So are. these are these are marketed as sleeping pills. Mm-hmm. They they work at GABA receptors, but they don't bind to the benzodiazepine site. Is that but, no? They do they bind do to bind the benzodiazepine, but site, they are not benzodiazepines. But they're not benzodiazepines. Ah, so. Uh, What's the difference then? You know what uh, between those and a benzodiazepine is it? Do we expect there to be a a difference if they bind at the same site? Well, they have a different structure. They have a different uh, a backbone to them, and they interact with that site a little bit differently. Um, you might compare that to just different types of benzos have different types of actions, right? Because they have slightly different structures. Some of them are very strong in their sedative properties, and other ones are much much weaker. Some of them. Are, act like antagonists, partial agonists, or whatever. So, uh, it's just a class of compounds that target those and and those particular that particular binding site, but just interacts with it in a different way. So it's not as strong, if you will. It's that doesn't really act as much as a sedative as as the benzos typically do. So, are these basically just weak sedatives, or are they really qualitatively different? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not being a clinician and not having a good handle on those terms. Not having taken <laughs> So the benzodiazepine binding site is invariant across all the receptor subtypes. Is that right? So or no. It... That, no, that's, that's not true. So there are, um, there's what used to be called BZ1 and BZ type 2 benzodiazepine binding sites. And there are some GABA receptors that are insensitive to benzodiazepines. So C, um, right. C, not only C. Okay. So yes, GABA C, which is made up of rose subunits, is benzodiazepine insensitive, and that's one of the reasons why people call them GABA C receptors. And then they discovered the delta subunit, and alpha beta delta is benzodiazepine insensitive. So that's why there's confusion among GABA A and GABA C. If you make your distinction by pharmacology as opposed to, say, gene products, it can be kind of difficult. So, so there are combinations of GABA receptors that are insensitive to benzodiazepines. So is this possibly uh, explain, I don't want to use the word explain, but relate to this why you'd have so many different receptor types? You say, oh, they look so similar, but maybe for these extrasynaptic stuff, uh, those roles, they actually act quite differently to these partial agonists, and that can make all the difference if you're regulating cell excitability. If you're zapping them with GABA, which is their main function, which they've asserted everywhere, and they work fine for that, they may Mm -hmm. not look that different. But some of these other roles, they may be quite different, and you want to regulate things 
kind of different. Absolutely. I didn't mean to imply they were all the same. There are clearly examples that you can pull out where they have very different function, whether it's benzodiazepine insensitivity, our differences in their sensitivity to GABA, our differences in their conductance. I mean, there are, but then there are lots that are very similar. And, uh, and, and I guess if you sit back and try to think about it, do we really, you know, do we, if we really try to understand why you need that level of diversity, it, you kind of, it's a tough one, right? To, 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 to go there and think that, um, that, you have to have such a fine gradation because some of them really do look identical. So why did that subunit come about if it doesn't change the properties of the GAB receptor compared to that other subunit? I don't know. It's a question that um, has always been there once they figured out there were 19 of these things. But I think it's even more relevant in the potassium channel field where there the diversity is daunting. The uh, One of the things about... This seems confusing to me about uh, GABA drugs is the their relationship to dependence. So uh, barbiturates, of course, and ethanol are uh, drugs that for which you can obtain a physical dependence. You acquire a physical dependence. That's the word mm-hmm. I was trying to learn. And and so th- they have can have violent withdrawal reactions. In this, they are also addictive, I guess, in some sense. And I notice in those ads for those sleeping pills, they always say, like any sleeping pill, you could become dependent upon this. Maybe have it for me. Have it for me, that's what they say. (laughs) So I wonder, uh, what is the connection with habit-formingness and these drugs? Is there a possibility that the drug companies could make a drug that was a good sleeping pill but it's not habit farming. I'm sure they're thinking about it. I think that. I'll defer to my colleague, Carlos, <laughs> for, <laughs> for the addiction. I think the, the, the problem with the habit forming is that it also acts on cabergic receptors in the region of the dopamine neurons. Right? And so if you have a drug that um, inhibits cabergic receptors and therefore disinhibits dopamine cells, it'll become habit forming. So it's kind of an indirect effect, and things like opioids are known to act exactly this way. But yeah, it's probably not the action on dopamine neurons that makes you sleepy, or maybe it is. No, yeah. So, so that's that's the side effect part, right? So, so the side effect is the habit forming, but the the real effect is the effect on generally on GABAergic receptors, where it facilitates the GABA effect yeah. on the receptors. But so if there was it, enough diversity of receptors between the right. dopamine cells and wherever the places that you want to attack yeah. for sleeping part of the brain, <laughs> then you could uh, you could exploit that if you were a drug company. And yeah, to I guess that's, that's part where, where David comes in and tries to find these subtle differences and mm-hmm. be able to give it to a company and tell them that if you change the benzodiazepine just this Certainly way, there's been a lot done already to try to do that because this habit-forming thing is a real drawback. Yeah. And... Uh, People don't want to become addicts, and yet they do want to take sleeping pills. Doctors don't want their patients to become addicts, but they want to prescribe sleeping pills to them. So it must be hard. I mean, it must not be something that is too easy. Yeah. Maybe it's because the dopamine cells GABA receptor is a pretty common kind. Or, right. or the differences are so subtle, as, as you say, that we can't, we can't really differentiate them yet. Mm-hmm. Lots of 
I mean, I don't uh, dwell on this addiction thing, which obviously isn't the most popular conversation topic, but the but other addictive drugs don't necessarily have violent withdrawal symptoms the way barbiturates and and alcohol do. They have really among the most severe withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. So the the sort of physical dependency aspect of of barbiturates is high compared to the physical dependency attributes of amphetamine, for example. Right. Yet amphetamine works strongly on dopamine cells. So there must be more brain circuitry. Of course, yeah. That's a, the, the, there's, there's a lot more than just dopamine in terms of addiction. I mean, addiction can be thought of as craving for something that's rewarding, but it also can be thought of as avoiding withdrawal symptoms. So um, maybe, maybe one is amphetamine is people that crave the rewarding feeling, but opioid active, um, heroin addicts um, just keep taking heroin because they don't want that crash. <laughs> it's like kind of that t-shirt that says, um, avoid hangovers, stay drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Is it right to say that the, the biggest interest from drug companies comes in GABA receptor um, structure function stuff is, is based on um, sleeping aids? Is that is that the biggest market for GABA drugs? Or is it I mean, that, that that is a big one now. Uh, but, you know, there's sedatives and they have other compounds. There's also theories about, um, it turns out that um, there was a paper recently where um, it was uh, shown that in, in an, in an a mouse model of Down syndrome. So they did the trisomy repeat and they created a mouse with Downs. It had too much inhibition. So when they studied various uh, neurons in the brain, hippocampus and stuff, they found that there was more inhibition, inhibition there. And so what they did, this was done by um, uh, Craig Garner, who's at Stanford. They took the, they said, okay, so maybe the too much inhibition um, is keeping these mice from learning. And he used this compound, it was either picrotoxin or related to picrotoxin, which blocks GABA receptors. Of course, normally it's lethal, but if you use it in a low enough concentration, you can partially block. And found that now these Downs mice learned a lot better than when they blocked GABA receptors, suggesting that they're relieving a little bit of this inhibition, and now you could have the LTP if you buy into that. <laughs> um, and so... so that could be really, really cool, and, and that's being pursued now with autism as well. So, there's Get rid of your inhibitions and expand your consciousness. So that's you. right. <laughs> <laughs> Treating epilepsy also, obviously, a lot of these compounds were used to treat epilepsy. Oh, epilepsy is... Well, epilepsy would be in the opposite way, right? Right, but you want to in, increase you, you want you want to increase inhibition, yeah. right? But I mean, she, so the question was, if, you know, targeting. Yeah, what are the, main what are some of the things you target? So there's been a big push. I mean, there's a lot of also other ways you target. You know, there there are use dependent sodium channel blockers that are used in um, and other other compounds. But a lot of the earlier ones were all GABA receptor enhancers, and the problem there though was that a lot of them had bad side effects, you know, in other words, they were, they were sedatives. And what you don't want to do is knock somebody out to treat their epilepsy. So Still com- commonly prescribed for yep. infant epilepsy. That's right. That's right. Uh, I, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Well, thank you, David Weiss, for joining us. It's been great. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.
Thanks. Thanks.